Hey everybody, welcome back to a brand new episode of Mike Adelic. We got a great guest today, Dr. Christopher Ryan joins the podcast and what a pleasure to meet one of the inspirations for this show, one of the inspirations for opening me up to new ways of thinking, new ways of perceiving the world, new ways of plugging into this game of life. Uh, so thank you, uh, Dr. Ryan, for being on the show and um, for all the great work that you do and the way that you live your life uh, and lead by example and kind of, you know, uh, exemplify the sort of uh, different version of reality that we could tap into. And uh, I think that that really is what kind of the key message for me had been in the journey of my uh, discovery to just satisfy my hunger for intellectual depth. I, I didn't never really got that as I, you know, talk about in public education. These guys, you know, uh, Chris Ryan, uh, Chris Ryan, author of Sex at Dawn, host of Tangentially Speaking, and uh, his second book, the forthcoming Civilized to Death, The Price of Progress, like him and, and Daniele Bellelli and uh, Joe Rogan and the guests that he has on his show and Graham Hancock and Thaddeus Russell, you know, uh, the list goes on. But, you know, these these people that I, I wasn't exposed to at a younger age and then uh, when podcasts started taking off, this information is able to get out there more because our mainstream, you know, dominator apparatus is not necessarily plugging this into the consciousness of the young developing minds uh, that are thirsty and hungry for new and different ways and, and deep uh, understanding of uh, reality and, and life and, and all those sorts of things, history. So, yeah, I mean, as I'm starting this show, I'm like trying to think of a way that I could possibly be as good as as Duncan Trussell in the way that he began his show. I mean, he is just on another level. Uh, the Duncan Trussell episode with Dan Harmon is one of the best podcasts I've listened to in a very, very long time. Uh, and Duncan is making music and just being hilarious and weird and, you know, total Duncan. And uh, Dan Harmon is absolutely on fire, just riffing and really getting digging into a lot of Campbellian thought, philosophy, uh, myth mythology, and applying it to our time right now. And they're talking about how, you know, we're, we're all wearing these like Halloween costumes. And, you know, now we're living in this time where we get to choose like an infinite amount of Halloween costumes that we want to put on, you know, this skin bag that encapsulates our soul or whatever the life force inside of us. It's just a costume. And we, we've been at this party, but now there's millions of parties and millions of costumes. And anyway, I'm not doing it justice whatsoever. I'm an idiot. But the, go listen to Duncan Trussell's last podcast from beginning to end it's uh, it's brilliant. It's a work of art, and um, these are the kinds of people that uh, that have been the inspiration for uh, you know the catalyst, if you will, for propelling me onto a journey of discovery and creation. And it's a, a extremely fulfilling one. It's a it's a one with many ups and downs and despairs and isolation. And you know, I'm a huge fan of Charles Bukowski, as you know, and he's got that great poem. If you're going to try, go all the way. And, uh, you know, Bukowski was a, a deeply troubled, you know, misogynistic, alcoholic 
crazed individual, but also a creative genius. And he wrote some really beautiful, touching poetry. And uh, one of his poems that I love a lot is this one that I'm about to read right now. If you're going to try, go all the way. Otherwise, don't even start. This could mean losing girlfriends, wives, relatives, and maybe even your mind. It could mean not eating for three or four days. It could mean freezing on a park bench. It could mean jail. It could mean derision. It could mean mockery, isolation. Isolation is the gift. All the others are a test of your endurance, of how much you really want to do it. And you'll do it, despite rejection and the worst odds. And it will be better than anything else you can imagine. If you're going to try, go all the way. There is no other feeling like that. You will be alone with the gods and the nights will flame with fire. You will ride life straight to perfect laughter. It's the only good fight there is. I just love that. You know, I, I really do. And it's, it's, uh, I used to have that clipped out in my uh, room on a piece of paper uh, right above my door. So I would see it pretty much every day. You know, uh, the, the life of, of creating and, and detaching yourself from general consensus reality and going out on a limb to do something else, it is not easy. And like Bukowski says, you will be faced with all these challenges and all these obstacles, and it's going to be a test, an endurance test. How badly do you really want it? What are you willing to sacrifice to, you know, uh, secrete the thing that's inside of you into manifesting, into being, into coming into the world of sparking some kind of creativity, extending its tentacles like a mycelium web and touching other minds and other souls that have the capabilities of doing the same thing. And, 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 and that's what Chris Ryan and all these guys that I mentioned have done for me. And I feel like it's one of the greatest honors if I could even come close to possibly doing that for somebody else. If we could bring more thought-provoking curiosity into this world, more ideas that try and serve our humanness and our humanity in this reality. If there can be more people getting inspired to create, more people getting inspired to think in new and novel ways, then we don't need to be confined to the prison of this dominator culture, general consensus version of reality, confined and limited to the linguistic and symbolic, uh, archaic structures. We're moving into a time right now where that kind of thing can be replaced, can be replaced with many diverse and novel, interesting and weird and wild and fun games you know, but it's, it's not easy. It's easy to just play the maze that has been presented out in front of you. It's easy to just go with the flow. I know I, I do it. I battle it, you know, and then you have to balance out like how, okay, like 
Am I going to just go mad trying to like birth some kind of creation into the world, some kind of idea, whether it's a book or a podcast or a piece of art or music or whatever it is that you're doing? Maybe it's just really you really love your job and you're really focused on that and and you want to really excel at that. Whatever it is, I've learned that it's also about living a good life while you can now, too. But I also like the idea of let's create something great that can be passed down, that can inspire others, that can carry the torch, that can, you know, pass the baton from one generation of thinkers and creators to the next. Let's, you know, let's let's keep the beach ball in the air at the concert, you know, the beach ball of of this life. Like, let's keep it going. Let's let's play the infinite game, right, to keep it going. And that's that's an appealing idea to me too. So it's just this kind of negotiation of of time, you know, the most valuable resource that we have uh, by far. There is nothing that is as valuable as this thing that we call the movement of time. And so, you know, it's really this balance of living in the moment and also living for a particular kind of meaning and purpose as well. But there's one kind of overpowering, oppressing, tyrannical, dominant paradigm that inserts itself into our, um, into our lives, into our reality, and, and forces us to conform to it, you know? And these, these people, they are the manipulators, the sorcerers, the dark masters of time. They're able to control the societal and cultural dominant narrative, the, the major story of history, the story of our present moment, the story of the future, but this is just one story. However, they are the most powerful people that are imposing this story upon us, but that's not the only story there is. There's the story of you, every one of you listening to this show. There's the story of me, there's the story of Chris, there's the story of everybody. And that story is just as valid Actually, it is more valid. That story is more important, way more important than the dominator civilization's singular narrative, their dualistic, materialistic, forced, conformed narrative. This story is the story, the story of you, the story of your life. You're here, you're now, you're living, you're breathing. What are we doing? So like Bukowski says, if we want to create something amazing, it's going to be really difficult. You could be in isolation. You could go crazy. You could starve. But what is it? What could we create? What can we make happen? It's 2019. I can walk into a store and buy cannabis. Mushrooms are decriminalized. The psychedelic movement is making an effort to push things more and more towards not being looked at as criminal. It's not for certain people or only these people or, you know, we need to test. No, it's about liberty. This is about the right uh, for you as a human being to be the author and narrator of your life. And I know this sounds like kind of cliche and hokey a little bit like, oh, it's your story and you get to create it or whatever. And we've all heard this before. But really, I mean, when we look at it, and you know, something that I've been thinking about a lot, because since moving to Denver, the homeless issue has is kind of been a thing. Living in New York, people are just like, yeah, whatever. Who gives a shit? Like Louis C.K. has this great joke where he's like, you know, why aren't we going like, oh my God. 
God, there's homeless people. He's like, no, no, we, we don't do that. We just step over them. But it's, it's, it's insane, you know, because here you have, we've criminalized people's choices to check out of the game. We've criminalized people's choices to not conform to the general mainstream consensus of what reality is. And that's a big problem. We penalize and punish people for making personal choices. We penalize and punish people for deciding that they don't want to be a part of this mainstream narrative that we're, the dominators are writing. And, you know, I don't want to be a part of it either. And I like to create something awesome. So inspired by Duncan Trussell, come to my compound, join my cult. And uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm interested in enrolling in the Duncan Trussell Cult Academy. I want to learn how to culti- cultify my life and create a following. <laughs> anyway, look, yeah, uh, that, that episode again, uh, the Duncan Trussell, uh, Dan Harmon episode phenomenal from start to, to end just phenomenal uh dan Harmon is brilliant and duncan is brilliant and but anyway this intro has gone on far too long uh you know you guys know what to do if you love the show like it share it subscribe leave a five-star review on apple Podcasts. that always helps we have some awesome reviews and ratings up there so thank you very much to the people that do that if you want to go to a, a step further uh because i don't want to have ads on the show Let's just do Patreon if you want to show your support. You know, you can go, you can contribute a dollar a month, $2 a month, whatever you want. Uh, and there's rewards and bonus content and all that good stuff. So if you enjoy it and you have a couple extra green pieces of paper in your pocket, then send them my way. Go to patreon.com slash Mike Brank. Go check out my website, MikeBrankBranc.com. Um, all right. Well, that's about it. Without further ado... Dr. Christopher Ryan. Psychedelics are illegal, not because a loving government is concerned that you may jump out of a third-story window. Psychedelics are illegal because they dissolve opinion structures and culturally laid down models of behavior and information processing. They open to us the possibility that everything we know is wrong. We don't need new laws that control our consciousness and rigidly place it in a prison. Cognitive liberty. The fact that as adults, if we're not hurting anybody else, we should have the right to explore the contours of our own consciousness without any mediation or legislation on the part of somebody else. Reject authority. Authority is a lie. Information is power. But we have to seize seize the opportunity. The opportunity. The opportunity. This is like this is like a high honor for me. I know you don't like that kind of stuff. You but no, no. I mean, well, yeah, but <laughs> now to be here with you, uh, you know, it's it's a weird thing. I get this too from doing the podcast. You know, running into people, people messaging me and being yeah. like, "You were such an impact in my life," or whatever. And it's a, it's a strange kind of thing because you never really know them or see them personally. Yeah. But now here we are. Here we are in a Marriott. Here we are in a... Who saw yeah. that coming? Is it, a, is it a JW Marriott or is it just a regular Marriott? I don't know. It's a something sweet. I don't know what it is. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, my van broke down, which is why we're not in some beautiful, pristine place. Yeah. And uh, why I couldn't come to your place. 
Um, thank you. Yeah, it, it is a strange thing, like you say. You obviously have a lot of fans because I guess you saw I was coming to Colorado and you sent me an email or a, a direct message. I don't know what, what it was, but I lost it. Yeah. And I was intending to get back to you. And then uh, within the next three days, probably 30 people wrote to me and were like, hey, you got to talk to... 30 people did? Daniele Bolelli did. Oh, uh, Charles right. Johnson did. Uh, I, a couple I, I, of I asked them too. Yeah, yeah. I figured. Yeah, yeah. Like, we have some friends in common. But then a lot yeah. of people were just like, dude, you're in Colorado. You should talk to Mike Adelic and, you know, you guys need to hang. So Awesome, So yeah. it was cool, yeah. No, that was really cool seeing people do that and... Yeah, Dan, Daniele's uh, like an amazing guy, you know, he's, yeah. he's really cool. And Charles, too, we hung out recently. But, yeah, it's, I mean, you, you've definitely impacted the course of my life, which is, mm. which is, I'm not trying to, like, put that weight on you, but I'm just saying, like, thanks. It's a, it's a you know, it's an appreciation, I think, that we can all, um, you know, be a part of in this kind of sharing podcast, intimate uh, economy of if you want to call it an economy, but just this like reciprocity thing where, yeah. you know, I know people listening to this show are going on, starting their own things and doing right. their own things, getting, hearing different messages, messages that you might not have heard anywhere else. So, yeah, you know, true. I remember one episode, so I was doing stand up comedy in New York and walking dogs during the day. And, uh, I think I, we, we might've emailed back and forth a couple of times. Like I asked for some advice or something and, and then I heard an, an episode you did where you just gave this intro about like traveling. Some guy wrote into the show and he was talking about like the despair of traveling, like the mm. loneliness. He broke up with his girlfriend. You're like talking about Thailand and being on the beach and like some guy comes, gets fish and you're, you're just chill. Mm. Time is slowed down. You know, everything's new and novel. And I'm like, fuck man, like I'm spending all my days just like in dark comedy clubs, like every night like going like four or five shows a night then like going out drinking doing coke just doing stupid shit and walking dogs during the day and like i haven't really seen the world mm. so i bought a one-way ticket to bangkok no shit fuck it like yeah well done and just went until the money ran out how long did you stay like four months nice all, yeah all, all in thailand or did you get around all around southeast asia oh, thailand sweet. uh laos Vietnam, Cambodia, nice. and back to Thailand. My my idea was to spend more time there and like go to Indonesia. And mm. some people were talking about like go to Australia and like work on a farm and mm. keep traveling. But something pulled pulled me back. I think mm. I I was podcasting at the time and doing comedy, and so I was like I kind of miss that right. a little bit. Right, cool. but it was great. <laughs> good, yeah, good. It's you know I'm. I, I try not to give advice just because things can go wrong and then somehow, you know, you fucked up. But Thailand's a good country for uh, traveling, I think. It's sort of, it's the one country I'm comfortable recommending to just about anybody. Because it's, you can go off the path and it gets pretty exotic and pretty foreign, you know, very quickly. And Laos, I love Laos. Mm. I, I really enjoyed there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess Cambodia is better now than when I went there. It was really depressing when I was there in like, uh, 02, 03, something like that. It was still really traumatized, you know, culturally. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Thailand, you know, great food, great people, interesting, um, history and just, yeah, I, I feel like there's a place for everybody there if you want to travel. 
Yeah, definitely. You, you've talked about, did you ever do uh, a Toma about your Southeast Asia travels? I, I, you've mentioned it a couple times. Yeah, but. I don't know. I, 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 honestly, I forget where the Tomas left off. I kind of, you know, I was living alone for uh, a year or so, a year and a half or something. And so um, I'd be home like the third or fourth night in a row by myself and it'd be like, ah, you just get a little lonely and feel like having some company. So I drink a couple of beers and record a Toma because I felt like I was there with the audience in a way, you know? Um, and then, uh, and then life got sort of a little more interesting and, you know, more people coming in and out and all, and I sort of lost the thread and I, I feel bad about it because there's a lot more stories to tell. My friend Anya and I were just talking about this the other day, like, um, there was a story that I thought I had told about being back in New York after Asia and I definitely haven't told that when I was working with the mafia and doing all this crazy shit in New York on a construction project in Hell's Kitchen yeah yeah that's separate from the other New York story that got you to go to India right right right. yeah so that was the first one yeah and then I went to India I feel like I've told a Roma thing about India yeah that was that was good was that when I was like it had the bang lassi and listen to yeah, the music. Yeah, yeah. Rooftop. <laughs> Yo, and that I, was oh, great. and I shut down. That was <laughs> excellent that storytelling. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well-produced. Yeah. Good, good music. Yeah. But I mean, I don't produce anything. That was just like I'm telling the story and then like, oh, let's stick in a song here. And, you know, I, I it's all. I tried to fancy it up a little bit. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah, there, uh, I don't know. I don't think I got into Southeast Asia yet. So that's probably where I should pick it up. Yeah. Because I spent a lot of time in Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia, Nepal, which isn't really Southeast Asia, but I don't think I talked about Nepal either. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I've been back a bunch of times. Yeah. Yeah. And you first went there, what, in the 80s? Yeah. Um, my first trip to Asia would have been uh, 87, maybe, mm. something like that. Maybe 86. I'm not sure, really. Yeah. The past is a blur, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the more of it I have, the the less specific I, you know. Well, you've had so many experiences, right? Yeah. It's like, and I was and moving that's... around all the time. Yeah, I had this chart that I kept for years, um, where years went down the the left column and months across the top, and so I would keep notes of like, oh, here's where I was from, you know, March to April. I was in, you know, this country and I met this guy and met this woman and hooked up here and then we went and then I went there and then I got this job and then, so it was all on this chart. So anytime I needed to remember like where were you in the spring of, you know, 92, I'd be like, "Oh, pull out the chart." And I can tell you because otherwise I have no clue. Yeah, what happened to that chart? I still have it actually. Do you keep, yeah. do you keep another chart now or not? I don't know cuz now I feel like now it would be more applicable because of uh Yeah, but now Google Photos will tell you <laughs> oh, where yeah, you were, yeah. right? True. I mean, they're tracking us. That's right. Uh but before I had to track myself back in the old days. Yeah. yeah. Chris Ryan's down. We got him. We got Scarlett <laughs> Johansson. He's in the hotel. That's move, right. move, move. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I got a chip embedded up my ass or something. Well, yeah. Do you ever do you ever think that maybe that some uh, like some of the stuff that you're advocating is getting some attention from from people or not may, not maybe advocating but like you know your work and uh, I I don't know you're we were talking before yeah. like, it's not like we're Alex Jones or anything right but there's definitely an element of like subversion let's, yeah subversion take a take a look take a step back from yeah. this notion of modernity and civilization and progress right. And, 
Yeah, I mean, I would say probably not in any sort of NSA, you know, let's keep an eye on that guy sort of thing. <laughs> right, yeah. Although, I wouldn't be surprised if people are watching Rogan. Right. Because he's, you know, he's got enough of an audience that he could cause problems. Yeah. Um, and, you know, his advocacy of psychedelics certainly has been outspoken and consistent. And I wouldn't be surprised if somebody somewhere is watching him. And if they're watching him, then they see me blip up occasionally and they know who I am. But I don't think so. The only indication I've had was years ago, I um, had a brief connection with a woman who worked at the State Department. And at one point, like we got together a couple of times in different cities, sort of, you know, casual nice nice relation you know very friendly relationship let's say right and at one point her boss came to her and said um word to the wise you might want to cut off that thing with chris ryan and that was like wow how did her boss know that she was seeing me and even who i was she had top secret clearance so i guess she gets watched but that was I was kind of um, proud, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like I'm yeah. off limits to people yeah. with top secret clearances. Right. Did um, that make her more attracted to you? Like the, the, the bad boy effect? <laughs> like, oh, watch out yeah, for me. Yeah, I think she already knew I was a bad boy. <laughs> yeah, that was that was an interesting situation, which I should not talk about publicly, probably. <laughs> yeah. Well, we could edit that out. <laughs> That's all right. Keep that. I just, I just should podcasting. speak more about yeah, it don't, publicly. Don't elaborate say. on it. Well, yeah. I, I think about that sometimes. I mean, just some of the shit that I put out, you know, really, especially early on, because mm. I was like very evangelical, like Leary-esque level, like yeah. everybody needs to drop out of society, take psychedelics and move into the woods. But I didn't have a big enough audience at the time. Right. I still sort of believe in a core element of that messaging not necessarily mm. so rigid and you think everybody can benefit from psychedelics no yeah I don't. Know. no 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 not at all i i think that um they're great tools you know they could be i think stan groff said it's like they could be it's like a the telescope psychedelics are what the telescope was to astronomy and what the microscope is to biology they can be used as tools to find out about our human mm. experience and you yeah. know and but now i mean the thing that I value the most about a psychedelic experience is more in, you know, I, I worked in and lived in Peru in the Amazon jungle at an ayahuasca center for most of the last year. Oh, which center? Temple of the Way of Light. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Casilda, my wife Casilda went there. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, she was there for, I think, three weeks. Yeah. And then she went to Niwe Rao. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a crazy place. You should, I mean, Iquitos, you would love that area. It's just, yeah. it's crazy. She said it was real Wild West kind of, like uh, a lot of just w- people watching, a lot of characters walking around. Yeah, it's yeah. like the Moss Eisley spaceport in Star Wars. Right, like, right. A wretched hive of scum and villainy, you know, <laughs> just like characters. Everyone's a character, you know. Yeah. There's like the guy that drank too much ayahuasca and just stayed there, and he, mm. he's been there for like six years, and he's got dreads down in his ass. And yeah, he thinks he's God. Yeah. yeah, well, that right. So these are things that can happen, right? You know, with this. So I'm not so, you know. What were you doing there? You it. say you were working there. Right? So I volunteered there, uh-huh. uh, and that was a great experience. And then I actually met my girlfriend, who I'm with now, there. Mm. Um, 
I kind of pitched them this idea of like starting a podcast, like creating a podcast for them. Cause like I wanted to stay there. I was like, how can I, what can mm. I provide of value? You know? Yeah. I could crack a couple jokes, but yeah. <laughs> really I thought it could be valuable. So they, hi- they decided to like hire me to come on, but they didn't really have the resources mm. and things like that. And so I, and I also had gotten a message in a ceremony that was just like, Hey dude, like you've, you've seen the fireworks show, like the Alan Watts thing. Like if you get yeah, the hang message, up the hang phone. up the phone. Yeah. So go back, do the work. Right. You know, we're showing you what we can create in this visionary space. You go do some shit and create that in right. the world. So I'm like, okay, fine. So I decided to come back. Uh, but yeah, it was a fan. It was a really just unbelievable experience. Um, forgot where I was. <laughs> uh, Iquitos. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, we're talking about place. tools and, and whether everyone can benefit or, you know, right. Yeah. I was the same. I, and I think, I think everyone goes through, yeah, I don't know if everyone, but a lot of people go through an evangelical period, um, where you just feel like this is so amazing and so helpful. Uh, everyone should have it. Everyone I love should have this. It, it'll solve any problem. And, you overestimate the applicability. Um, and I think I underestimated the, um, just the, the sort of subtlety, the, the gray areas of like, okay, this can be really good for some people sometimes. And even those same people, not in other times, you know, and I feel, um, yeah, I, I was trying to convince everybody I love to trip the first year or two after I did. And looking back, a couple of people that I was trying to convince, I'm really glad they resisted, you know, because they were in a place uh, or their personality was uh, oriented in such a way that I think it could have been really, really painful for them, which um, isn't necessarily bad if you can work your way through it. But I wasn't qualified to help them through it. And so I kind of look at the world now and it's amazing. I, you know, I, when I was in my early twenties and this was a really big part of my life, I couldn't have imagined that I was going to live to see psychedelics legalized in American cities, you know, and eventually I'm sure the whole country that was just like, forget about it, man. That's not going to happen. You know, this was the Reagan years. This is when they were clamping down on drugs and minimum mandatory sentences. And, you know, a guy selling shrooms at a dead show goes to prison for 30 fucking years. You know, it's like insane. And and now to see this happening. And strangely, it's happening when the government is even more of an enemy, the federal government, you know, than, than I considered it to be then. Crazy. But anyway, the... Um, it's great to see it happening. It's really beautiful. But on the other hand, there, you know, the, all those sort of common American afflictions are on display. The, you know, the commercialization, the overestimation of one's knowledge and wisdom and abilities and the ego getting, you know, cause they're so, I think psychedelics are uniquely, um, uh, seductive to ego. And, oh, totally. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's like if you become a yoga teacher, you might get to be full of yourself, but you throw some <laughs> ayahuasca in there or some oh shrooms God, or something. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, tell boy. me about it. You know what I mean? There we go. 
it's like that. Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot lately because it's it's really really important. You know, like yeah, e- anything can be converted to ego's use. Like uh, yeah. one of my favorite books by Cho Young Trumpa is spiritual, cutting through spiritual materialism. Yeah, that's a great book. Yeah, and it's just like you see this you see this happening all the time, and you like you. You're here in Denver, I mean, you could go in Boulder. Like these are sort of these are places where these kinds of experiences are available to you. You can go to a gong bath, a cacao ceremony, you know, a yoga cannabis thing, and listen to some, you know, someone that had one ayahuasca experience, and now they're telling you about how we're all light and love, and everything's fine the way it is. Just meditate and right. don't worry or whatever. Yeah, the world's gonna be fine. Yeah, yeah. Just just trip out as the Amazon gets fucking torn apart right yeah yeah it's it's an interesting time it, it i've always i've often thought like you know i grew up in a really boring time like the 70s you know when i sort of came to consciousness was like what the fuck disco are you kidding me really and i was old enough that i was aware of the late 60s you know when i was a little kid and especially at my aunt's place i this aunt who's only 11 years older than me and we used to go visit her. And my mom was the oldest sibling and this aunt was the youngest. So my mom was co- sort of like, you know, Frank Sinatra, Perry Como, cocktail parties, bridge, you know, like that was my parents' world. But then we'd go to visit my aunt and her world was Grateful Dead, Neil Young, uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, you know, like Joan Baez and like much more. And they were smoking weed and it was uh they had all these hippie friends and they were hippies and i remember thinking like man just give me a few years i can't wait to join this party you know like i really like this music these women who are coming around are really sexy and okay i'm 11 fine but give me a few years <laughs> and then by the time i got old enough it was fucking disco dude it was over the party was gone it was john travolta and like oh come on so what the fuck am i talking about why am I? What was the thread there? I lost right, cool. it. Cool. We're one for one now. I lost it. Um, yeah, but it was like growing up in a boring time. Yeah, and now there's. And now it's so interesting. Yeah, yeah. I forgot the thread though. It'll well, the, come back. The seventies is actually. I've been actually. Uh, so, do you know Eric Davis? Um, mm. He's a he hosts a show called Expanding Mind. He wrote a book called Technosis. Mm. Uh, his new book called High Weirdness is fucking. I can't wait to get get to it. But he ta- he's investigating this weird time in the 70s where like Philip K. Dick and Robert Anton mm. Wilson and McKenna were just – he explains it as this this sort of fallout from the 60s mm. where like all those people that were getting turned on and dropping out and then they were just like, fuck, like war on drugs, Nixon, yeah. what do we do? Like where do we go? Like what, you know, what happens now? And he like he's identifying this as this like – turn and face the strange kind of like decade of like things diverting into subcultures. Like this is Mm. really the first time that you start to see a pronounced um, evolution of, of the subculture, you know, I mean, Mm. it it took place in the late sixties, but prior to that, it was really like, you know, uh, turn on channel seven, listen to Ted Koppel. I was he alive then. I don't know who the guy was. Uh, You know, Walter Cronkite. Walter Cronkite. Right. Yeah. Like two, you got three channels. Yeah. Mainstream culture was like, this is really the stranglehold on the dominant story that we're telling the masses of people. Yeah. And in the seventies, you saw this kind of fracturing and 
the eighties, it was like a lockdown and the nineties and kind of came back and mm. like the two thousands, it kind of pulled back a little bit. And now we're entering more of this like fractalization of weirdness. Mm. Yeah. And, and what we're doing right now, this whole internet, you know, way of, of disseminating information has really cracked a lot of stuff open. Yeah. A lot of those subcultures now are, Oh my God. They have outlets. Everybody's got an outlet. Everybody's Walter Cronkite. Yeah. Yeah. It's a and uh, that's the way it is. That's, <laughs> he that's he ended everything because he was he like, ended it like that? yeah every that's night the it, it was is. a CBS oh evening news. He was the most trusted man in America, Jeez. and he was the one that when um, he went to Vietnam, and this was probably seventy one or so something like that. Uh, could it have been seventy one or no? It was earlier because Johnson was still president, so it must have been sixty seven. And he went to Vietnam because a lot of people were saying this is ridiculous. They're giving us fake information about because they had these body counts, and every night on the news they'd say, you know, seven hundred and forty two Vietnamese were killed and eleven Americans, and he's like, okay, every night we're killing like a hundred times more of them than us, and yet this isn't, you know. So he went. And he came back and was like, uh, I just have to tell you what I saw there. This was a, this is a travesty. People are dying for no reason. It's a quagmire. There's no way out. And President Johnson said, when we've lost uh, Walter Cronkite, we've lost the war. And so that was like, he decided not to run for reelection. And that was sort of a big turning point. But yeah, every night he said, and that's the way it is. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> this is what we want you to believe. That's it. There's nothing else. Yeah. But that's actually cool that he did that and exposed the truth. Yeah. Well, th that it was. The, see, that's the thing. I mean, on the one side, you say, OK, there were only three outlets. It was totally mainstream, corporate control, blah, blah, blah. But on the other side, they were journalists. They took themselves seriously as yeah, journalists. Journalism still mattered. Right. As a Who's real doing thing. it now? The fucking Bill O'Reilly, you know, these Fox News idiots, the MSNBC people. They're all just readers. They're not journalists. They're people who sit there and read and give their opinions, right? But they're not going out in the field and digging into stories. They didn't work their way up, most of them, through newspapers and, you know, on the city beat for 10 years before they got a shot at, you know, local TV. And then, you know, they didn't go through that. So they don't have this allegiance to journalistic integrity. It's all about viewers now. And... I don't know if you know this, but when the TV networks were set up, Congress passed a law saying, okay, we're going to give you this airspace, you know, that you can use because there's a certain limited number of frequencies or frequency bandwidth, I guess, that they can broadcast. So we're giving you this, but it's like, it's sort of like um, public land, right? Like we're going to let you graze there, but you have to pay something for it. So it's, it was like that, like we're going to let you use these frequencies, but I don't remember what percentage it was, but something like 10% of your programming has to be for public good and with no view toward income generating. In other words, you need to set aside 10% of this airtime just to make this a better country for public education. For So they weren't trying to make money on the news. The news was a loss. They lost money every night. You know, now, of course, news is just like anything else. And they've totally abandoned that pact between the government and the corporations. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the medium has an impact, right? Like it, it dictates kind of the style of what we're going to be getting and and the corporate interests that are attracted to it. Yeah. Right. Like 
it's funny. I was watching Back to the Future, one of my favorite movies of all time. Watch it again and again. It's pretty layered. They put some Easter eggs in there. Mm. Uh, this one scene in particular where... <laughs> Easter eggs. Yeah, like yeah. Like, he, Marty goes back to 1955. Spoiler alert for anyone. Um, <laughs> right? Yeah, what's the statute of <laughs> limitations? What's the statute of limitations on <laughs> spoiler like, alerts? It's like, yeah, right. So he goes back to 1955 on the marquee that where he, he... There's like a movie theater in town that says, you know... Uh, whatever Betty Goodman and Ronald Reagan like as in the yeah. movie and he's trying to explain to Doc like hey man I'm from the future I've come back he's like oh yeah future boy well who's the president in 1985 as if that is like a like a qualifying answer that can hold weight in his world for right. some reason yeah yeah he's like yeah he's like Ronald Reagan he's like the actor well who's the vice president Jerry Lewis you know and then Doc later is looking at his camcorder and he goes I understand why your president has to be an actor now because of this, uh, you know? And yeah. it's like that, that medium dictates right. Right. what we get and what is attracted to that, that thing. And now it's like fucking chaos. Yeah. You ever read Marshall McLuhan? Yeah. Yeah. Medium is the message. Great. Yeah. Yeah. He's one of those writers I'd like to go back and read now. Yeah, I, I read him in college, you know, cause I had to, mm-hmm. um, but Yeah. I think he was probably so much smarter than I was able to understand at that point. Same. Yeah. yeah. Be interesting. I read all these great books in like my early twenties like that. And what was the other one? The closing of the American mind. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Neil Postman's right. actually, I just reread Neil Postman's amusing, amusing ourselves, ourselves to death. Oh yeah. my God. I mean, this guy yeah. really hits the nail on the head. That's funny. I just wrote this book called civilized to death and I didn't, I, like there's a debt to be paid there. I didn't even think about that. Oh, just well, in the no, title, yeah. you know. I yeah. can't wait. I can't wait for that to uh, to come yeah. out. Got it on pre-order. You want to talk about that Thank a little you. bit? Um, yeah, we can talk about it. It's it's uh, sort of a sequel in a way to Sex at Dawn in the sense that when I was writing Sex at Dawn, I included um, like the beginning. The the I would say let's say they're thirds of the book. The first third is. Um, sort of looking at the anthropological and primatological um, data that, that sheds light on human sexual behavior and prehistory. And then the middle third, which is small, is um, sort of looking at other aspects of life in hunter-gatherer um, societies and how, because you can't just talk about sexuality without talking about family and you know, uh, male-female dynamics, and and then you get into, like, who's bringing in the food, and how does that translate into power, and and all these sorts of issues. So I I covered some of those, and then the last third was more um, sort of uh, modern applications, and looking at, you know, why are modern societies so freaked out about masturbation, and so confused about female sexuality, fucking (laughs) cornflakes, and graham crackers, and all that. Um, And when I was writing it, you know, I was thinking like, okay, this is all interesting to me, but this middle stuff is kind of more important than the sex in a way. Like the sex stuff is really important for us individually, but on a social level or, a, you know, civilizational level, this, the economics and the, the way that life changed so radically for our species when we um, started this agricultural stuff, that really interested me and a lot of people wrote to me after and they're like man i'd love to hear more about that stuff you know the sex stuff was interesting but i sort of got the message pretty quickly and so that's this book was an expansion of that and trying to 
sort of look at civilization from a like a cost benefits analysis but more legit than is normally done because one of the points i made in sex at dawn which is much more um, central to this book is that what passes for science in these areas at least evolutionary science and anthropology is often politics masquerading as science so there's all sorts of misapplications of darwinian theory for example to justify extreme wealth disparities right andrew carnegie set up all these libraries andrew carnegie is arguably the richest american who ever lived if you look at um, sort of constant dollar value he's still you know more than bill gates or any of these people um and Andrew Carnegie, so he set up all these libraries. He was incredibly ruthless. He broke unions. He, you know, had people murdered and called in the Pinkertons and, had, you know, all this horrible shit. Um, and he set up these libraries and he insisted that every library had to include one book, Darwin's On the Origin of Species, because he believed that Darwin justified his wealth because he was the fittest. That's why I'm winning. I'm the fittest. See, Darwin explained it. It's just nature. Now, Darwin never said any of that. Darwin didn't uh, comment on wealth disparities uh, explicitly. And he was totally against slavery. He was an abolitionist. And yet, um, white supremacists often use Darwin uh, or claim to be using Darwin. You know, well, why do we have all the money? Because we're better. It's obvious, right? Why did the Indians all die? Well, because we're better, you know, if they were so great, how come they're gone? You know, might makes right. All these misapplications of, of science in the guise of uh, actually politics in the guise of science. Um, so anyway, the point is the cost benefit analysis of civilization is extremely flawed. And I was trying to look at it again with new eyes and a more sort of balanced approach. So what really are the costs of civilization? Right, because right. they tend to be ignored, and let's take another look at the supposed benefits of civilization, which tend to be exaggerated. Oh, totally. Yeah, it's all to fit the narrative, you know, right. of the dominators. Yeah. There's there's great. Have you ever read Society Against the State by Pierre Clartes? I think I don't think so. It's it's pretty good. Um, but yeah, he talks about this getting to your point of like, you know, because what you're what you're talking about is like civilization. What do we decide as being like the penultimate of progress like we we we've kind of like decided that like well we're in this track of like linear progression and we measure everything mm. due to like our technological material output but this is so singular and narrow-minded right right it's more complex and dynamic so we have a tendency to look at these primitive societies call them primitive societies because where's their where's their excess right where's their surplus where's their overabundance but really, in my view, and I, I think you agree with me, that like it takes a lot of intelligence to balance things out more yeah. and say, hey, we don't need all this shit. Right. Like, we're good. Right. Well, that's the thing. Choose your metric, right? In one of the books I sort of trash and civilized to death is a book called The Rational Optimist by Matt Ridley. <laughs> oh, yeah. And in, in that book, it's... You trash it, huh? Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, I see that Matt Ridley, Richard Dawkins, Steven Pinker, these guys, I, I call them neo-Hobbesians okay. because they 
follow the Hobbesian argument that life before the state was nasty, brutish, and short, right? The, the whole quote is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Hobbes knew nothing about hunter-gatherers. He was just talking out his ass. Um, but these guys should. I mean, there's a lot of information out there about how hunter-gatherers actually live, but you, none of their theories seem to be contaminated with any actual knowledge of how hunter-gatherers live. And so they talk about, um, you know, the selfish infiltrator, for example. Well, there's no way hunter-gatherers could be egalitarian because, you know, just look at it as a sort of a game theory approach. Uh, one guy who's selfish would end up getting more. He would end up taking over because everyone else is egalitarian, but you're the selfish one. So you have this power. And so selfish will always win. Turns out hunter-gatherers have very complex and very long-standing mechanisms for dealing with selfish douchebags. And everybody's armed in a hunter-gatherer society. So there's no way to really play the system. Like, okay, you're bigger. I don't give a shit. Everybody else has bows and arrows. You know, your back's always turned to somebody. You go on a hunting trip and you slip and fall off a cliff. Like, yeah, it's a little unfortunate, right? I mean, so anyway, there, there are all these ways of, of um, actually understanding how hunter-gatherers live that undermine the political message of these guys, which is very much, this is the best it's ever been. I mean, Picker yeah, says it, it explicitly. It benefits his work. It benefits him. It. You were talking before about uh, science, right? And yeah. like Rupert Sheldrake's book, The Science Delusion, you know, the dogma mm, of right. the science religion. Right. Like we can't have things... I mean, we the Catholic Church burned people, Bruno, right. uh, you know, Giordano, Giordano Bruno, Bruno. Yeah, like yeah. this is how dangerous these ideas are to their domination of the story. And now we have supposed scientists who are fulfilling the role of the church that, you know, that's the problem because Scientism, they're, yeah. they're proselytizing and. Uh, yeah, so we, I was talking about uh, the rational optimist. Right. He says in it, like he starts the book by saying, you know, these are like inarguably the best times that humans have ever had. Right. It, whether you measure it in, um, you know, millihertz or tennis rackets or um, mango slicers. Literally, I'm I'm quoting him. Mango fucking slicers. So tennis rackets. Greatest time to be alive. Mango yeah. slicers. And he says like you know intercontinental missiles. Like that's a measure of wealth. How many intercontinental fucking ballistic missiles we have? Really, that can destroy the planet. You're using that as a metric of success and wealth. So yeah, choose your metric. Right. I would say. Most people, if they really step back and think about it, would agree that a more rational and relevant metric might be uh, how nutritious is my food? Um, how many chronic diseases do people generally suffer from? How long do we live? Which, you know, is often misunderstood. They think hunter-gatherers only lived into their 30s, which is demonstrably untrue. Um, how much time? That was because of the dental eruption right. that happened, right? Well, yeah, I mean, there. I'll get back to that in a second, but um, yeah, so you can look at not only longevity, but how many years of healthy, vigorous life, right? Um, I argue in Civilized to Death, we don't live any longer than hunter-gatherers. We just die more slowly. Mm. That's not necessarily a good thing. Dying slowly hurts, yeah. you know? It's humiliating. You lose control of your body. You lose control of your life. You lose autonomy. Is that a good thing? Eh, I don't know. Um 
How much time do you have to spend with your friends? How much time do you spend doing something you really don't want to do? Right? Hunter-gatherer is virtually none. So if you look at these metrics um, that really reflect quality of life, I argue in Civilized to Death that it's very hard to conclude that life has gotten better for the average person. And we're talking, I'm talking about you and me, we're not average, right, worldwide. Even our lives aren't demonstrably better uh, looked at this way. But, you know, some guy picking food out of a dump in Manila, come on. Those people, that kind, that like super low income, very struggling for survival, which there are hundreds of millions of people living like that today. There was nobody like that in the hunter-gatherer times. Right, yeah. So anyway, yeah, the tooth, do you want me to get into the longevity thing? Sure. So the thing is, you know, you ask people, even people like medical doctors who really should know better, they'll say, well, when they hear me, you know, whining about, civilization they'll say well you know we live twice as long you can't dispute that in fact that's total bullshit we don't live twice as long the reason that people think we only our ancestors only lived into their 30s is that when archaeological finds um, are made the archaeologists look at the skeletons and to uh, now, these are skeletons that are 10, 20, 30, 40,000 years old, right? So it's very hard to conclude much. Um, and often they're just fragments of skeletons. So the way they judge the age at death is, as you said, um, something called dental eruption, which is basically the wisdom teeth, how far they come out of the jawbone. Um, and there's good reason to believe that this is consistent across time for our species. So just like today, you start to get your wisdom teeth in your late 20s, maybe early 30s, and by your mid to late 30s, they're in. That's it. And then you don't have anything else happening in terms of dentation. So when they look at these skeletons, the teeth are all worn down and broken and fallen apart, but they can look and see, oh, okay, this one, the the teeth, the wisdom teeth aren't out at all, um, but it's a pretty large jaw, so this is probably a 20-year-old, 20, 20 to 25 years old, or infants, they're smaller jaws. And then around 35, that's where you stop being able to tell the age at death because the teeth are totally out. The wisdom teeth are totally out. So they notate 35 plus that doesn't mean that person was 35. It means that they were, sorry, I'm just Simon Rex. <laughs> I, thought, I thought my phone was on uh, Do Not Disturb. Dirt Nasty. Dirt Nasty. <laughs> um, it doesn't mean that they died at 35. It means they were at least 35 when they died. So then the you know if the uh, journalist reads this report and doesn't understand that, they see, okay, there were 15 bodies discovered here or skeletons discovered here. And none of them were over 35 because the dates are 15 plus, 25 plus, 35 plus. There's nothing 40, 15. That's just a misunderstanding of how archaeologists note the age of death. So that gets into the mainstream mental narrative about prehistory. This idea that we live twice as long as our ancestors gets cemented into the narrative. And it stays there because it makes people feel good. It's not true. No no specialist, no archaeologist, no primatologist, no serious anthropologist 
believes that we only that we were old at 35. Homo sapiens were never old at 35. Right, yeah. And and do you think this happens by accident? Maybe it's out of our control, the way that it gets out there. You know how people just read headlines and they attach to a thing and repeat it and that just becomes the narrative. Yeah. Or do you think that there's also sort of a more um, explicit attempt to kind of make the make sure that this is the story because it kind of legitimizes <clears throat> yeah. you know the the corporate state control of the people well see don't that, go back, that's don't a big go back theme. to that time right i that's a big theme of the book that i i think that a lot of what's going on is is like uh zookeepers saying to the animals in their cages boy you're lucky you're in that cage protected because wow outside there it's oh it's a nightmare see that's the hobbesian view right um in fact i talked about watching this documentary uh you know i was flipping through channels somewhere and i saw this thing where it was um i don't know like the planet earth or one of those nature documentaries and it was these seals playing in a wave and like oh the you know the harbor seal blah 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 and then you hear like do 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 and you see the shadow and I think it was an orca came up and like bah, knocked this seal in the air and then like got it in his teeth and you see the flapping seal and the narrator says we slow this down to a hundredth of its normal speed and you see the <laughs> blood running down the orcas you know nature struggle yeah. for survival and always you know, and. I was like, Jesus. So I, I've hung out with seals a bit in yeah. my life and they seem really relaxed to me, you know? Yeah. So I went and looked up like how, how, what's the average lifespan of a harbor seal? And it's like 30 years. So, okay. That seal, let's say it was in the prime of life. Let's say it was 20. That seal lived 20 years lying around on hot rocks, eating sushi with his friends having a great time and then died in so quickly that they had to slow the video down to a hundredth of its normal speed. So you could even see it. Right. And they're using this to say, nature is horrible. You're so lucky. You're sitting on your sofa with your Fanta and your fucking bag of chips. Right. How, what ratio of suffering to pleasure are we going to have in our lives? Or, you know, do we expect to have what's what's typical for our species? It's nowhere near as good as that seal had it. Right. Yeah. Uh, sign me up for that. Yeah. yeah. Come on. Yeah. Orca. <laughs> so we, if you had to choose an animal that would kill you, what would it be? I guess. Yeah. Maybe an orca. Like, <laughs> yeah. Get, get me out of here quick. quick I don't want to be quick. in hospitals plugged yeah, into machine. I mean, yeah. it's just that's a sick, cruel system that we've devised sterile fluorescent lights yeah. come in oh yeah i wish there was something we could do but keep them hooked up and you know it's just i i you know i've, I've gone through that i know you you went some you know duncan's gone through stuff yeah. that like yeah. it's just not it's just it's just so sad it's and it's the thing that's so cruel about it is that it's based upon a denial of mortality you know? Ernest Becker's Denial of Death, like right. one of my favorite books it's a great of all book. time. Yeah. 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 I mean, I went through that with my dad less than a year ago. And yeah, I had to, there was a point where I had to call his primary, his main doctor. And I said to her, like, he's, my dad's dying, right? Like, he's not going to get better. 
And, uh, well, you know, well, blah, blah, blah. I was like, come on, come on. He's not getting better. So why are we still doing these tests? Why are you still sending him around? Yeah. No more. Enough. The money, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's not that she was getting the money, I don't think. I think it's just that's the protocol. Yeah, that's the system. And, and they're so uncomfortable talking about what's really happening. They're so uncomfortable because, you know, and I understand for them. I don't, I'm not blaming her or anyone else, but, you know, they're in medical school. They don't teach you how to help people die. It's all about avoiding it. It's all about winning the war and, you know, fighting. Oh, he, you know, after a fight against cancer, like, why are we always fighting all the time? You know, it's going to happen. Where's the grace? Where's the acceptance? Where's the, you know, the beauty? Well, that's not included because everything is in a vacuum, right? It's like you're, this is the medical model. There's no room for any kind of weird mystical thing that we can't mm. measure beauty. What is that? I Maybe mean, we can't measure that. That's right. Like, you know, oh, or yeah. we'll, put, we'll put a tree in the room. That'll be okay. A little plant or something. Plastic. Yeah. Play yeah, fake plastic trees <laughs> in your fake plastic, yeah. you know, hospital and people and yeah. this whole system and, and the right to die should be your choice too. Like people should have the choice to say, I'm out of here. Fucking kill me because I'm going out. You know, pull yeah. the plug, get rid of me. I want out. If you if you can't make that choice, it's like, well, the fundamental question is like, who owns you? Then? Right. Like, what are you? Somebody's pet? Yeah. What, what is this d- dystopian, domesticated hellhole that we've created here, where you can't even just off yourself? Yeah. Although, I mean, you can't off yourself. Or be, it, it's illegal. Be offed, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But. Yeah, it's 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 weird. I I sort of I flip around on that. I I used to be very fundamentalist about that. Like my life is mine. Fuck off anyone who tells me otherwise. Um but then I had this friend who he was on my podcast a few times, Justin Alexander, and uh he died probably. His body's never been found, but he seems to have been murdered in India. And he got into some stupid shit and did, you know, took risks he shouldn't have taken. And, and he and I talked about it a lot beforehand. Anyway, when he died, it really it really got to me. And because uh, I had sort of a father-son vibe with him. And uh, and it around that time, I read this thing that um, John Perry Barlow had written. Uh, he was a lyricist for the Grateful Dead and an essayist, a really interesting dude. And he'd written like this list of, you know, 20 things every adult should understand or something. And one of them was your life doesn't belong to you. It belongs to you and the people who love you. And so you need to be careful with how you live your life and, and be considerate of the people who care about you. And when I was younger, I didn't think about that much. You know, I, I did dumb shit that could have gone really wrong. And yeah, I was aware like it would break my parents' hearts if I died in some fucking motorcycle accident in Thailand, but it didn't stop me from renting the motorcycle. And, you know, I was lucky, right, Yeah, you know, but yeah, it's weird. So I, I, I agree with you. Like if I get a, you know, diagnosis of pancreatic cancer or something, yeah, I'm going out on my own terms, assuming I have the opportunity to do that. Um, but as far as younger people 
I don't know. I regret, I think, some of the, um, the callousness with which I approached that when I was younger. And some of the stuff that, you know, could have gone very, very wrong and I would have hurt the people I least wanted to hurt, you know? Yeah. Well, you said you had an awareness of it, right? You had like an awareness of that. But I think, you know, it, it makes me think of like the... I don't know, like a movie or show where like there's a hostage situation. They they're talking to the guy and they have his wife and they're like, "We'll kill your wife right in front of you because the death of someone he loves is going to be more yeah. important than something happening to him or something happening in front of him." So there is that interconnectedness that we share. I think about that. I'm a new uncle uh, and I'm like, "It's great. I mean, it's great. You know, kids are psychedelic. It's yeah. fucking awesome to be around." these kids and just watch them discover the world. And that, that I went through a period of depression. I had suicidal thoughts, Mm. but that kind of kept me there. Like I, I don't want to do this to these people that I know care about me, Right. that this, that I am some kind of important figure or can be in, in this interconnected web of, of life that I'm, that I've been gifted. Right. And that's another important metric when we're looking at quality of life. To what extent do you feel um, embedded in a web of love? And you know, at no time in human history have more people lived alone than right now. You know, and that's a that's a travesty. But do you think? What's his name? Uh, you know, the rational optimist, Matt Ridley. Is he? Is that one of his matrices? No, of course not. Right. So these these analyses of civilization versus pre-civilization or non-civilization, it's so important. What are you choosing? What What are your measurements? You know. Yeah, it's weird. I I was depressed and and suicidal and nihilistic and resentful, but I had a juicer. Oh yeah, sure. I, didn't have, I didn't have a mango slicer. Maybe if I had a mango slicer <laughs> and, a, a tremendous and a missile mango slicer, yeah, <laughs> it would have been great. Terrific mango slicer. You know the one thing uh, <laughs> that predicts uh, health more than the one factor that you can look at that will predict how long you're going to live more than anything else, more than smoking, more than your body mass index more than you know your diet more than exercise is are you part of a community mm, yeah totally that cares about you johan hari's book lost connections sure is brilliant. there it is and yeah. recently just a couple of days ago i was listening to this guy daniel schmachtenberger mm, you ever hear of him haven't he's pretty interesting i i think he's the founder of this company called Neurohacker Collective. He was talking about how exactly this, like we need each other, right? Like this is really important. I learned this when I was living down at the temple in Peru. And um, he he talks about, he gives this point of like, because we, we, we live in a society that the opportunity to isolate oneself like we have these things that are like mass shootings and then like mm. the, they go and they interview the neighbor and he's like, Oh, he was always a quiet guy. And you know, Kept we never, himself. because he, he was just, he was isolated yeah. and allowed to stew in this psychopathology and just until it just erupted and yeah. like a cancer growing in the body of humanity. Yeah. And that is fucked. I mean, living in New York city for eight years, it's the most amount of people and you can feel so alone. Oh Yeah. So alone. 
Yeah, loneliest time of my life was New York, for sure. Yeah. Manhattan. It didn't help that my job was so weird. Yeah. You know, I mean, I was working in the Diamond District. I'm not even Jewish. Right. Um, and nobody I was working with were was someone I would hang with. Yeah. You know what I mean? So there, So my entire day was spent with people where there was zero chance of, let's go get a drink, you know, with a Hasidic Jewish diamond dealer, you know, that's not happening. Um, but yeah, it, it was, it was strange. New York is a very isolating place. Yeah. Yeah. It, it just it, seems it really like is. everybody else has so much going on, you know? Yeah. It's, it's you, almost you, like you, social media. It's oh. like everybody's life is great and mine kind of sucks, but then you realize it's not really how it is, but it looks that way. Yeah. Well, we're obsessed with that. We're obsessed with the appearance of things, right? It's like, wouldn't it be great if you know they're like throwback Thursdays? Wouldn't it be great if there were like, I don't know, fear and loathing Fridays or something? (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Just like where there's like one day a week where you just sort of admit, like, yeah, you know, I got diarrhea and, you know, my girlfriend left me and you know i feel fat and ugly and yeah i got a zit on my ass people do do that though. do they they do that for there's this we it's so we live in such a weird time right now it's like this weird world of like yeah like i do that but i try and keep it as authentic as possible mm-hmm. right like i'm not i'm not going for brownie points or like sympathy likes you know this um hierarchy of like moral superiority monetary value like oh like my plight is so bad worship my plight you know (laughs) and that's yeah we see there's a lot of that even in like this whole pc movement and stuff yeah right virtue signaling virtue signaling and like self-righteousness and you know like well there's no way out of it then is there because everything becomes a display yeah well in this crony corporate civilized statist model of society where everything like like this my big thing right now about psychedelics, like I'm working on writing this this piece about the commodification of the sacred. Like it's, right. this guy David Nichols, perfect uh, phrase. Yeah, he, I got it from him, and he he gives gave this excellent presentation on it. But I'm trying to go further with it in in terms of like everything, like even psychedelics. Like Michael Pollan wrote this. He was a huge advocate. How to change your mind, and you know the psychedelics, and look. Let's look at the benefits. And then after we decriminalize mushrooms in Denver. He writes this piece for the New York Times saying, slow down, not so fast on psychedelics. We still don't know all there is to know the research. So I did this like What satirical... the fuck did we know about serotonin <laughs> reuptake inhibitors when they got commercialized? Right, Nothing. exactly, right. But yeah. it fits the, the corporate model. It right. fits this consumerist model. This idea of psychedelics could be one of the purest experiences you have where you maybe you get to peek behind the veil and experience the real. You see some kind of mm. element of truth or whatever it is. There's a movement now led by MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, and Compass Pathways, and Michael Pollan's now all of a sudden elevated to authority figure on this subject to mainstream this. Mm. Take this thing and plug it into this shitty system that we have mm. that absorbs and co-ops the, right. the purity of the original intention to begin with, and it becomes this like bland vanilla shit that mm. we're swimming in. You know. So do you think... That that's interesting. Can the subversive potential of psychedelics be removed? It's almost like what you know. 
what the the powers that be are trying to do with marijuana. Uh, you know, like how can we get the uh, anti-spasmodic effects, for example, without the patient getting high, as if getting high is a problem, right? Right. Don't want enough giggling. No more giggling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no more ice cream. Yeah. You know, like, it, do you think that the that subversive quality could ever be removed from psychedelics no that's the i whole don't think point. so yeah I, like that's the whole point of of to me to yeah. me in my opinion it's very much like showing us what how we could be connected as human beings right. and connected to the planet and connected to the mystery and right. the awe and the wonder of what this is and you look around you at all this bullshit and you see that its entire purpose is to disconnect you exactly from each other from the planet from your true feelings so that's its subversive nature right so by you know you're saying that maps and michael Pollan and these guys want to mainstream it so what so if you have this experience in a doctor's office at johns hopkins is it going to be less mind-blowing because it's you're then associating this experience with medical science and all these institutional authority structures. I think there's a there's a place for all of this to occur, you know. Yeah. But I'm I'm against the medical monopoly model, right. you know, the kind of commercialized consumerist model of psychedelics, the Silicon Valley businessman's trip. Just right. take a little. Just take a little LSD yeah, so you yeah. can be a little bit more productive at yeah, work. Yeah, exactly. And, think outside the box a little bit, but not too far but outside not too far. the box. Exactly, yeah. yes. Yeah. And, Just and, outside the box. Right. It's it's this kind of model, like a great way to quiet dissent is to just absorb the dissent Fuck. into the model and take oh, it on man. and then commercialize it. Like, Do you remember the um, a couple years ago, the... Protesting Black Lives Matter that was like very big, and Pepsi put out this commercial. Oh yeah, I with remember Kendall that. Jenner. Yeah, yeah. It's exactly that. It's like yeah. selling like grunge was this thing, and it's like ripped blue jeans for sale for two hundred and fifty dollars. The last episode of Mad Men at yes, SLN. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, but doesn't it? Doesn't the machine always do that though? Isn't I mean, what band has ever made more money than the Beatles? Yeah, right. And they're one of the most subversive, you know, if you really pay attention to the Beatles, it's all about, especially late Beatles, after they discovered psychedelics, oh, it's yeah, very yeah. much, you know, about get out. I am the walrus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whatever the fuck that meant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting. It, it, I mean, that would be heartbreaking to see psychedelics somehow become part of the system. Yeah, that's like that's that's my my anger, my frustration is like no, we're not trying to take the psychedelic experience and plug it into this shitty model. Yeah. Um that then it, it, it you know, it's like ideas that are out on the fringe, ideas that are weird and really out there. There's you even sort of see this it's the normalization of things, right? It's like the whatever we deem to be normal. Mm. Like let's not Let's not make it kooky and out there. Let's just bring it normal. Hey, we're just like you. You know, it's all normal. Everybody wear khakis and go to, you know, Brooks Brothers and go to your desk job and just don't complain too much because we've given you a little bit of these consolation prizes for living in this system that we've created. 
but the point is to just change the system, like make it so that that's obsolete so that we can move on to something that better serves people. Right. And I think that if you magnify that on a civil civilizational level, that's kind of the, the interplay that's, that's happening. Yeah. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm a lot older than you. What are you? 30 something. Yeah. So I'm 57 and I hate to be the grumpy old man in these conversations, no, please do. but I often find myself, I mean, I, it's weird. I, I don't know how to say this. It's like, I love the fact that people 20, 30 years younger than me are excited about changing the world. And I think that's fucking great. And I want to assist that and feed that and, and maybe even be alive to see some of it. On the other hand, I feel like I've come to a point in my life where I look, how can I, is there, there's like a two stage process here. It's like we're on a train and the train is barreling toward the bridge that's been blown out. And, but those of us on the train are rearranging things and trying to find ways to be more comfortable. Uh, rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. That kind of yeah. thing, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, well, maybe the chairs do need to be rearranged. And and as we were saying a few minutes ago, there are better ways and worse ways to die. Better ways and worse ways to live. And maybe we're not going to hit the bridge in, you know, for another 30, 40, 50 years. Who knows how long it's going to be till shit really, you know, um, gets shaken up. And in the meantime, yeah, let's try to maximize our lives. Let's try to have as much meaning as we can and be as kind to each other as we can and so on and so forth. So it's not that I'm disparaging these ideas of like how to make life better. I, I think they're valid and important. On the other hand, I don't think they're going to affect the fundamental restructuring that really needs to happen before things can get the way they need to be because the system absorbs co-ops everything it has it just it just absorbs and digests every challenge that comes at it you know a major war happens oh great well we'll just become a war machine right that's what we do we're the best and um, you know, I, Joe Rogan and I talk about this a lot every time we get together, this notion that we're sort of a larval stage of life and, and we're transporting life towards some sort of techno, uh, techno biological entity. I feel like that's either going to happen or we're going to hit a wall and maybe it'll be global warming or biological warfare or, or who knows, something happens that that isn't something anyone's choosing to do i'm i'm the older i get the more i'm i see things in terms of emergent properties that no one's controlling you know like you were asking earlier like well do you think that someone's controlling this narrative that oh life's so much better i mean steven pinker and these guys clearly are cashing in on it and i don't think they're creating it though there's a reason that that line from hobbes from 1651 right? Life before the state was solitary, nasty, and short. That's one of the most famous sentences in the English language. And it's not because some powerful cabal somewhere decided to push that. It's because it 
serves an energy that rewards things that serve it and destroys things that challenge it, right? Yeah. So it, the it's... Beatles succeeded because the Beatles made money. Right. You know, like you can't, you sort of almost have to sell out in a way to have a voice in this world. Strange. Sort of, yeah. I mean, it's sort of inevitable, right? I mean, I, I don't, I think that, I sort of subscribe to the idea that we live in cycles, yeah. you know, and if you look at history, right, Rome, uh, all these, you know, empires, empires, right? That's right. how we view history in, in terms of empires yeah. is, you know, the state domination and yeah. it's always the same thing. It's, it expands and gets aggressive abroad and despotic at home and it, it, it stretches too far and then it collapses from the inside and yeah. then we start over again. We don't learn our lesson. Maybe that's just, we're, that's where we are. We're in this like state of being where that how, that's how things are. Have you read Ronald Wright's uh, Brief History of Progress? I haven't. Dude, it's so good. It's so good. What he does is he looks exactly what you just said. He looks back at previous civilizations, right? Sumeria, Rome, Greece, the Mayans, uh, the Incas, uh, Easter Island, I think. And he, he shows exactly what you said, that there's a life cycle of these things and they go through exactly the same stages time after time after time. And what's different this time is that it's global. It's not regional. And he says each time history repeats itself, it costs more. And this time it's going to cost everything because there's nowhere to hide. There's no, there's no empty land to run off to and start over again, you know? Um, so yeah, it's yeah, it's interesting. I I mean, in civilized to death, I I sort of at the end I, I get into this question like, what the fuck's going to happen? And obviously nobody knows. But um, uh, what was his name? The the Italian, the Fer- Enrico Fermi. Do you know about the oh, the Fermi the, paradox? The paradox. Yeah, 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 yeah. I talk about it a lot. Yeah. Oh, do you? Yeah. Okay. Well, so I ended the book. Spoiler alert. Uh, with a discussion of the Fermi paradox which for people who don't know this is Fermi was at lunch one day uh, with some other brilliant scientists and they were talking about whether or not there was life, uh, you know, non-Earth life. And he sort of like wrote down, okay, we know there are this many galaxies and each one contains this many stars and, you know, this percentage of those stars have planets and this percentage of those planets are in the sort of... um, uh, distance from the star where life would be possible because of the temperature range and there could be water and all this. Anyway, just sort of a quick calculation and they came up with like, you know, 100 trillion billion quadrillion planets that could contain life. So obviously with nearly universal opportunities for life, we're not the only one where this has happened, right? So then the question is, where is everybody? And the conventional answer is that <clears throat> these different life forms on all these different planets develop technology as we did eventually and that there's something inherent in technological development where your power exceeds your wisdom. And so they found ways to destroy themselves and they did because you know it's as if children giving children guns like they're gonna shoot somebody and themselves eventually so 
that's the very depressing look that there's this great filter they call it where like civilizations develop life develops and starts developing technology and they destroy themselves one way or another through pollution through bio warfare through whatever technology um but what i was thinking is wouldn't it be cool if some of those societies reached a point where their wisdom actually could equal their technology and they reached a point roughly where we are now where there's like okay we figured out basically how to have infinite amounts of energy without burning anything right we figured out how to harness the energy of the oceans of geothermal of wind of the sun we know how to control population we can have all the sex we want without having babies we the one area we're really bad at is controlling economics but if we could get a grasp on that instead of spending all this money making bombs and all this shit to destroy each other we took that money and gave a guaranteed basic income to everybody on earth and incentivized not having kids we could in a few generations reduce the peacefully and non-coercively reduce the population of the planet to what 500 million people pretty easily 500 million people would live like fucking kings on this planet right what if some of those life forms reached a point where they understood that the best place for them to live is where they started and they decided to stay home right so they didn't kill themselves they just were like fuck it there's nothing there's nothing out there that's any better than this. Yeah, I mean I like that idea. And yeah. that and that harkens back to the idea of the hunter gatherer tribe. That's you it. know, it's like, hey, we got what we need here. We what is know it? 150 people, yeah. Dunbar's number. Right. We're good. We got it. We're yeah. we're living, everybody's good. Everybody is in, we're connected. You care about people, right. you're invested in people. It's a good life. At a certain point, there's wisdom in saying this is all there is. Right. Right, And that's okay. And it's great. Yeah. It's great. Because while I was out running around trying to find something better than this, I wasn't even enjoying this. Yeah. Is it, you know? That famous T.S. Eliot quote, right? Like to, to go around the world. To and- the end of all our... We shall not cease our explorations and the end of all our... Ex- the end of all our exploring will be to return where we began and know the place for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe we're on this, you know, I'm a big fan of Joseph Campbell. So right. it's like, maybe the we're on this journey. like collective, you know, human species hero's journey where That's we, it. we have to go through these, these tests, these trials, we get the call. Are we going to choose which path are we going to choose? Yeah. And it's really up to us. I mean, maybe, maybe this has happened on earth before i mean you hear about atlantis and all these places i don't know Mm. you know uh but i mean it's interesting to think about because if there was a civilization that was so advanced look at where we're going where everything's being digitized it's glass it's in the cloud Mm. there would be no record of it well i don't this is where i part company with graham hancock a little bit i I like him we're friends we've hung out a, a fair bit and i respect him certainly but um, it seems to me like, okay, I get what you're saying about digitization and all that. Uh, so we wouldn't find lots of CD players necessarily, but, uh, Damn, you know, that mixtape from yeah. 1 million BC is dope. <laughs> it's old school. <laughs> yeah. 
but you know, infrastructure, man. I mean, dams right. and and you know, tunnels and uh, you know, titanium capsules containing radioactive material. That shit lasts a long time. Right. Satellites. How come there are no satellites spinning around the planet? Mm. In the fifties, when they first, you know, started, or, or whenever it was, that they seriously were looking at that. Why are there no other, you know, satellites in the solar system? Artificial, you know, although. Have you been in, paying attention to this one Umaguma or whatever it was called? No, what's that? This, it was a, uh, and I always mix up asteroids and meteors and comets, and but it was an inter a thing that came into the solar system, and. uh its behavior is very strange. It accelerated when it shouldn't have accelerated. It, the, the light coming off it is weird. And the head of the Harvard um, astronomy department wrote a paper saying this seems to be uh, not a natural um, occurrence. This is seems to be a probe that was sent to the solar system. Oh, I think I did hear something about this. Yeah. yeah. And some people, you know, obviously people scoffed and all that, but he's like head of the Harvard Astronomy Department. And he's like, eh, here's the data, you know, you look at look at these ways of studying these these objects. And this one is not behaving like anything we've ever seen. It's not behaving in a way you could possibly explain unless it's got this massive uh, solar um, sail that's collecting you know, cosmic energy, and uh, I, I'm not qualified to even talk about right. it. But it's really interesting. But there's things that we don't know, and I think yeah. for a lot, a lot of people, especially in the academic intelligentsia, that we, that's not okay. It's like we have to know, we have to yeah. be certain about the thing, rather than leaving it up to agnostic, you know, curiosity and just like we don't, we don't know. Yeah, it's hard for for those people to say they don't know. I, in fact, I had an idea to write a book about this, which I still might do someday, or I hope somebody else does, which is about those areas that specialists know they don't know, mm. but the general public assumes they do. You well, know what yeah, I mean? Right. Like, for example, I one of the first things I noticed was. When I was studying um, early human migration out of Africa, and I realized that our theories, the reason our theories keep changing so radically is, first of all, they're based on very, very little information. Someone, I forget who it was, but someone, in an archaeologist said to me, like, man, you took all the human bone fragments that we have older than 20,000 years, you could put them all in your bathroom. Like, that's it. And, you know, so we're extrapolating so much from so little. And then when I realized that the um, oceans are roughly 200 feet higher now than they were 70,000 years ago when the first people supposedly left Africa, and those people walked along beaches... Those beaches are 200 feet underwater now. So all those settlements, all those tools, all the stuff that those people left along those beaches, it's all gone. It's either been destroyed by wave activity or it's under sand. You know, people aren't going scuba diving, <clears throat> digging up artifacts, the very few. So what they found are from atypical settlements of people up in the mountains, maybe a hunting party, 
who knows why they went up there. But it wasn't a typical settlement. It wasn't a typical group of people or whatever. <clears throat> so the whole picture of human prehistory that we have based on archaeology is based on like a chalkboard that's 99% been erased. It's really strange, but right. people don't know that, you know. Yeah. But we leave it up to the experts to tell us, you know. Yeah, and and it's not their fault because, you know, as we were discussing earlier with the longevity thing, anything with nuance gets lost. Yeah. People want to hear a clear, certain story. That's what they remember. They don't remember the scientist who's like, well, you know, it's kind of hard to explain. Like, oh, you've already <laughs> lost them, man. Yeah, well, there's a lot of gray area yeah. here. It's not totally this way or that way. Tell it's me like a story, goddammit. That's, a, that's actually yeah. interesting. Tell me a story, goddammit. It's like that is how we tend to process information in stories. I mean, from yeah. hunter-gatherer tribes getting around the fire and telling a story and yeah. passing that down and the mythologies of that and, you know, th- the way that we understand the world, the the Russian hacking thing, and this happened, and it's a story, and that's how this happened, and that's the narrative, that's the story. And recently I was thinking, because I'm such a big fan of Joseph Campbell, I was thinking about, he was saying, like, look, we don't have this kind of modern-day story, really. Like, we don't, you know, religions are, people are losing faith in religions, you know, there's all these crazy things that are popping up, cults and all this crap. We don't have this one kind of planetary thing but I thought about this recently with there's a lot of movies in the show Westworld, right? Yeah. It's like great season one. Yeah, great season one, season two, big stinker. Yeah. Yeah. But I I, I, I thought about this thing where and I want to see what you think about this, is like maybe one of the stories that we have now is this sort of story of artificial intelligence waking up, right? But really looking at that as a metaphor for people coming into into consciousness and being more awake from the the controllers that are trying to control us maybe maybe we could apply that metaphor to it mm. and another one obviously is like terminator we invent technologies and then they destroy us and another one that fits into this is the whole zombie thing right yes like what are exactly. the walking dead why is why that is so popular so infatuated with this yeah and why is it okay that you know it's it's not okay to curse on on tv but you could sit around on the television with your family, eat dinner, and watch people getting their faces chewed on. Yeah. Like, what's going on? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. It does seem that we live in an age both of, of awakening and of zombification, uh, you know? I mean, I just spent, before you came over, I was, you know, as we said at the beginning, we're in a hotel here in suburban Denver because my van's being worked on, and uh, I just was in a shopping mall for the first time in mm. probably five years. Yeah, weird. weird really place. weird, man. This whole artificial world. I felt like I was on a Mars colony or something, you know, where every, everywhere you look is just like created kitschy bullshit, you know. It's yeah. this artificial world that we, uh, we've established. It's... It's interesting. I mean, I definitely felt like I was behind enemy lines, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, you're in the belly of the beast, so to speak. Yeah. The shopping mall is like, you know, the apotheosis of consumerist values. Yeah. You know, it, it rose to prominence in the 80s, right? When it was all like, go shopping and buy and just say no to drugs. <laughs> it's like this weird yeah. hellish place. I, yeah. I hope that we're going to be waking up out of this hellish nightmare are you yeah 
I think I mean, we are. I th- well, again, I mean, I think, again, you know, my feeling is it's like we're waking up on the train that's going toward the bridge. But um, I don't think we're all going to – I don't think that train going off the bridge or the sinking of the Titanic, I don't think it necessarily means, you know, the end for everyone. I think it means the end of this era, the end of this civilization, Right. But I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. One of the books that I drew from heavily when I was writing Civilized to Death is by Rebecca Solnit. It's called uh, Paradise Built in Hell. And it's um, her sort of um, survey of the field of disaster sociology. Mm. And so... Um, you know, this is part of my rebuke of Neo-Hobbesian analysis of civilization because the Neo-Hobbesians will say that civilization is the only thing that's stopping us from destroying each other, right? right? Um, because deep down inside, we're all just chimps and, you know, we'd be ripping each other's faces off if we could. And so what she she went and interviewed all these disaster sociologists who spent their lives studying how people behave in disasters. And without exception, what they say is the people who live through the disasters look back at that as the best time in their lives. That's that's fucking interesting, man. Right. To, Why? Because yeah. before the disaster, they were sitting alone in an apartment. They didn't know their neighbors. Their lives were meaningless. Everything sucked, but they were comfortable. Then the earthquake hit or the war or the flood or whatever it was, right? 9-11 in New York. Suddenly, you knew your neighbors, Suddenly you were important. You were helping people. People were helping you. It's not like, oh, I'm only helping, you know, my relatives because we share a certain amount of DNA, like the, you know, evolutionary psychologists argue with inclusive fitness. No, we help each other because we're fucking social animal. That's what human beings do, right? So this one of the scientists who's old now, I think he was the one who started the field of disaster sociology. He said, you know, the the lesson that I learned in my life studying this stuff is that the disasters are the best times in people's lives. The real disaster is normal life. Whew. Yeah. Lives of quiet desperation. That's it. In this invisible yeah. water of filth, polluted water. Comfort. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Comfort. It's, it's all this balancing, right? Because it's... Mm. What was that? Hur- I was in New York when that hurricane went down. So I experienced this, what you're talking about. I experienced this. Fuck, I can't remember the name. Hurricane. Was Sandy? It I- Sandy. Yeah. I lived in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And thankfully, I was more in. But the whole East River. Where did you Devastated. Uh, Ludlow and Rivington Street. Uh, yeah. I was like your name. I lived on uh, Stanton and. What? Yeah. When? This, oh, it was 89, oh, 90. I, I was like two. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was a different neighborhood then. Yeah. It was like Stanton and Avenue B. Yeah. Yeah, just cool, below man. Houston. Yeah, yeah, I loved it down there. Yeah. I mean, it was great. Yeah, it's nice but now. It, it's, it's actually, it's the normalization of like hell and paradise. It's yeah. becoming, it's like becoming this fucking just gentrified crap yeah. hellhole you know whole foods and well that i mean that's a great example gentrification right is what we gentrify our own lives when we have some money you know like traveling you instead of staying in the pension that's noisy and people coming and going and 
you stay in a hotel with tinted windows and air conditioning and then you wonder why you're so lonely. Yeah. It's because you bought your way out of life, man. You right. know, like anyway, I interrupted you. You were talking oh, no, about the experience about of the river. It, yeah. Sandy, I experienced what um, the woman. Solnit. Solnit is yeah. talking about here. Sandy hit. I was in my apartment. Um, power's out, lights out. Everything's, you know, fucked. And um, the I stayed inside, but the next day I went outside. The first time ever that I've ever seen this in New York City, people going up to each other. Are you okay? Yeah. Do you need Do you need help? Oh, people are using lining up to use the payphone. We're talking to each other. What happened to you? Are you okay? Do you need some money? Do you? Need, oh, I'm going up to my friends on fiftieth. I'll help you carry some bags. Like, oh, come by my. It was fucking beautiful. Yeah. I mean, it was beautiful. Even though this disaster had happened, human beings are caring and interacting with each other. Sure, there was some looting and stuff like that. That you're always going to have that, right? It's not this black and white. It's this nuanced thing. And you could be like this Ridley guy and be like, well, see, the looting happened. But really, more importantly, was that the majority of people were helping each other and talking to each yeah. other and connecting with each other. I even think I scored some girl's number, actually, that day. Yeah. <laughs> no, we're going up to my buddy's place. It's great. You know, because above 45th Street, there was power and, yeah. and stuff. But uh, I'm reading a book right now. Uh, you did probably enjoy this. It's, what's it called? Uh, New York tw- 2140, maybe? Something like that. It's by Kim Stanley Robinson who's a science fiction writer who I came across because uh, someone recommended a book he, he had written about hunter gatherers called shaman. And Whoa. yeah. And I checked it out expecting to be, you know, all like, Oh, that's not accurate. It's fucking good. This guy really knows his shit. And it's shaman's a really great book. I, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, very accurate. Uh, depiction of hunter-gatherer life. Anyway, this book is set in the future, I think 2140, um, in New York, after the you know the melting of the ice caps and global warming and all this shit really hits hard, and Manhattan's underwater up to around 40th Street. <laughs> so it sort of well, replicates yeah. your experience yeah, there. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's what's going to happen, yeah. Yeah. And people are living in the high-rises that haven't fallen, and... They've learned to waterproof the lower floors, and they're you know the Canal Street is actually canal now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Yeah. Well, I mean, and is it? It's like depicting it as this like dystopian kind of thing. Well, like, it, it's It's nuanced, okay. which is kind of cool. It, there is a dystopian element to it, and he talks about you know like looking back at um, like Katrina is a a unit of disaster. So like there were. Um, periods when like one of the massive Antarctic ice shelves plummeted into the sea and the sea rose 10 feet in a year. And there was like, Oh, that was a hundred Katrina's, you know, and mm-hmm. the, um, yeah. And, and the, you know, refugee crises and all this, but this is sort of like after the world has readjusted in a way. Um, and there are, you know, some people who've benefited from it, right. like Denver was a really talks about people oh, awesome, in Denver yeah. being yeah, like the, the, the mountain yeah. hills people yeah, yeah. You know, move <laughs> like, to the mountains get yeah, the fuck out right suddenly real estate in like Montana became really pricey well, that was the plot of Superman if you remember Gene Hackman played Lex Luthor and he's oh, like, no. his whole plan was to just blow up the west coast because he bought beach he bought uh, all this property in like Nevada <laughs> there was going to be beach prime beach front Hell property yeah. the perfect 80s villain Gene Hackman's 70s. great. I, yeah. I could watch him in anything. Oh, yeah. The Hackman. Yeah. 
But uh, I want to be conscious of your time, by the way. You have- oh, I'm good. You know, I want to go see a movie at uh, 6.20, I think. I want to see the new Tarantino movie. Oh, shit, I want to see that, man. Yeah. Come with us. Totally, I yeah, will, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so this is a this is a cool thing to to get to because what you were saying before, and I think it kind of ties in about we're on this train, we're heading in this direction, mm-hmm. right? No one's even fucking driving the train. It's just like, That's it. what the fuck is going on? Yeah, but it's, it's emergent. Going. It's, it's going yeah, where it's going to go. It's like, you know, yeah. So it's on this track. But there's, there's human beings are pretty resilient, right? I think that's what's kept us surviving. And did you ever read Born to Run? Where sure. Where he talks about it. like how we were able to run so we could sweat and we could hunt down a gazelle. And you know, Yeah, this. that's a controversial theory. But yeah, I, oh. I really enjoyed that book. Yeah. And I've actually spent time with the Tarahumar Indians. And, oh, shit. In, uh, no way. Yeah, in the Copper Canyon. Oh, cool. Yeah. I want to hear about that. Yeah. Well, the, but the, So the point I'm making is that we're, we are adaptable. We can adapt. And I think we're, we're at a point in time where it's like there's so many choices in terms of directions that we want to go and people vying for power on this runaway train. What what do we want to adapt to? Do we want to adapt to the society where we're all plugged in tubes and living in vats and virtual reality space and you know, or we've augmented ourselves to be these cyborgs? You know, do we want to strive for this like one world global hegemonic rule? Or do we want to like separate into tribal situations? And I guess it's all about how it's manufactured and sold to us, but um what do you think about that kind of like I guess proclivity to be influenced to adapt to circumstances that you might not particularly prefer yeah i think it can be framed as one of the best things about our species or one of the worst Mm. you know goddamn paradox yeah yeah (laughs) because you know another word for adaptation is tolerance Mm. and there's nothing particularly admirable about tolerating your own domestication um, which is what we've done. Uh, you know, I think about, I think about like a, a lot of the Native American people. I've spent the last few months driving around the West in the van and, you know, going through, um, you know, Cheyenne territory and Shoshone and Nez Perce and all these different tribes that I read about when I was young. And, uh, and I think about the fact that they were never slaves. Native Americans didn't work out as slaves. You even when they sent them, like the you know the Apaches, they shipped them to Oklahoma. They were shipping all the Indians that they captured to Oklahoma for a while, and most of them died. They just died. They couldn't adapt to reservation life. They couldn't even adapt to living in another ecosystem. So the idea that humans are adaptable is true, but it's also not universal. And I find myself frustrated often with these sorts of these sorts of generalizations where like, you know, well, we've always made it through before, you know, we've made it through all these different crises and we're a resilient, you know. Who's the we? Yeah, <laughs> right. Those of us sitting around here talking about it, yeah. our ancestors made it through. Right, yeah. But there are a fuck of a lot who didn't, mm. you know. Mm. And so 
it's kind of there are a lot more who didn't and and that's one of those things where i said you know i wanted to do a cost benefit analysis of civilization it's like i want to try to look at these things without forgetting the costs without forgetting the losers without forgetting the victims which we tend to do so automatically just because they're not here to speak up for themselves. Yeah, and it's, you know? and it's like that time, it's so long ago, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and there's this uh, there's this sense that the way things are were the way things had to be, this sort of fatalistic, you mm-hmm. know, like someone says, oh, I wouldn't change anything in my life because then I wouldn't be me, you know, as if you are the best possible version of the baby that was born on your birthday, you know, like where's the, where's the evidence for that? Yeah. That's rationalization. Yeah. Yeah. You just emotionally are attached to a particular story and then you're just going to do whatever it takes to rationalize it. But, and you understand from your position, that's sort of the only way you can see things, but you got to step out of that and say, wait a minute. My perspective is not the optimal perspective. It's just my perspective. Yeah. So, what the hell was your question? <laughs> the uh, the the adaptation. Yeah, yeah. Like, I I I fear that we are so good at adapting that we have lost our our dignity as a species and our insistence that we live in a certain with a certain, um, I don't know, dignity and decency. And we've exchanged that for the adap- adaptability. Right. You know? Yeah, to kind of fit, fit in and, and, and normalize. We're not wolves. We're dogs, mm. you know? And there's nothing... Dogs are great. But from a wolf's perspective, they're kind of p- pathetic, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so... Yeah. So that's kind of... I mean, I've, you know... I, I look at us as a species and I see a bunch of dogs. Some some dogs are great, but, you know, a lot of pugs and, you know, dogs that wouldn't last a minute if you took away the, you know, all this artificial support. Yeah, I mean, I kind of feel like I, I used to talk about, like, well, where where is, like, this real resistance, right? Like, and I, I had Daniel Pinchbeck on the show and he was talking about this, like, when his book How Soon Is Now came out, we were talking about like the people that went down to Occupy Wall Street. Like what like what would happen if they just did whatever it took to just not leave? Like we are right. here, we're not leaving. We are really committed to this idea no matter what. Uh, but obviously you had the police come down there and cause, you know, force them out and all this kind of stuff. So you have that yeah. clash of violence. But I, I still don't see, I see kind of more of like this pop commercial you know, Whole Foods charity type of activism, slacktivism. You know, like I gave yeah. a dollar to help some kid. And, and I tweeted my anger, you know? Yeah, I, I feel exactly, like people right. think they've I done something. I tweeted my anger. I, I'll retweet this and that'll bring them down. Yeah, sure. It's, again, yeah. maybe, it, you know, it's just this this apparatus in which we're in is great at absorbing the dissent. Clearly. Because where is it? You know, like I'm a big proponent of, Civil disobedience, opting out, like saying no, resisting, right? It's, it's, but it's fucking hard to do. And it's hard to win people to that side when there isn't, when you're not waking up with a boot on your fucking face every day. Yeah. When it's this kind of like weird, invisible thing that's happening that's like, yeah. we're moving towards this like Stepford Wives, like reality TV 
world. Moving toward like, it or we're <laughs> in it, man. I, uh, I hate see, to think that. Though. See, that's another one of Fuck. those one of those intellectual habits that we have. You know, where I mean, I don't know if this is an age thing or what, but it you know, at a certain point, like you've seen things happening over and over again, and you're like, the first time you're thinking, well, they'll never get away with this, and then it's like, fuck, they did, and then they do again and again and again. I've been listening to politicians talk about trickle down economics since I was in college, and people keep buying this shit, or or they keep letting them run the country. When, you know, where is the evidence that Americans will ever say, fuck you guys, enough is enough? I don't see it. I don't see it anywhere. As long as it's, you know, decently affordable to get a TV and Or I can get a loan. Get a loan, right. uh, You know, I'll go into debt for the rest of my life to get a college education that is worthless. And yeah, I don't, it, it. you you keep hearing about like the point of collapse. We're at the point of collapse, but I've been hearing about that for thirty years. Shit, and it we're hasn't in the collapsed yet, we're, or or it has. We're in. And this we're is like, what it looks it. like. Yeah, we're yeah. In. You know, or it's like, oh, we're coming. We're getting up to the point of no return. Well, at what point do we say, you know what, we've passed the point of no return? Because we have, you know, in terms of the environment, like that's done, and we're cooked. You know, now it's just a question of waiting for it but there's we could stop all carbon emissions tomorrow and we'd still be screwed how do you not wind up just laying on the floor and just depressed you know is it yeah well it's that two-track thing we were talking about before where like okay we're on the train that's going to go off the tracks but i don't know exactly when that's going to happen and in the meantime i'd like to live a good life Maybe you know? let's let's end on a positive note. So let's we're t- <laughs> <laughs> It's all a dream. This is all a dream. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're going to wake up and everything's going to be fine. Well, maybe it is. There's this interesting thing. I like getting into weird shit, but yeah. you know, like the nuclear bomb was invented the same year as LSD. Yeah. And yeah. since then we've been converging on these two paths and I forget who mentioned this it might have been pinchback actually talking about like we've we've like ripped a thing in the time space continuum like back to the future too right the alternate 1985 biffs the fucking mayor trumps the fucking president we're in this like weird fractalized yeah alternate universe but it it's the one we're in yeah and whatever it is it is but you got to live a good life you can't just devote your life to going mad i mean i definitely i went through a fucking madness period uh but was necessary to inform me of what i believe and what i feel is valuable right so yeah let's talk about some of the the cool things that you're doing i mean i know scarlet joe she's in the shop but you're driving around the vanthropology tour you're you're hanging out you're you're going camping hiking you're doing stuff my life is great yeah i'm super happy and yeah that's the thing it's like it's that you know i i've often thought like i'm an optimist uh, inside a pessimist who sees the world from an optimist perspective. So it's like <laughs> an enigma wrapped in, <laughs> that kind wrapped of thing. in enigma yeah. wrapped in bacon. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's like, it's like my particular experience of life has been extremely positive and I'm really happy and um, feel incredibly grateful. And yet I do think that as a species, we're pretty pathetic um once we reached civilizational scale 
and we are not in control and we're embedded within a super organism that's destroying the planet and doesn't give a fuck about our interests. And yet I don't really think it matters ultimately. So, you know, those are those different phases and the way I keep my shit together is that I try to have as much fun as I can and surround myself with cool people that I admire and love and, and recreate that sort of hunter gatherer tribal life as much as I can in terms of nomadism and, you know, a lot of sex and good drugs and jumping in rivers and looking at the stars and sitting by fires and, listening to people play music and like those things that matter that make life good. I've got a lot of them and I'm really grateful for that. And, and honestly, one of the cool things about the modern world is that, you know, if you have a little bit of cleverness and some luck, you can have a lot of that stuff and Hey, we're all going to die, but let's have a good time in the meantime. Hell yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah, it just it reminds me. I have to say this because I was just listening to Ramdas the other day talk tell this story about like Ravana and Kali or something, and it was this this debate, this this feud. One of them represented time, the other one represented love, and mm. he kept saying like everything you know is gonna disappear and it's all shit and you're fucked and you know you're gonna burn and Shiva is gonna destroy everything. And he's like, you don't understand. Like I'm. I'm eternal. I'm infinite. Like I'm playing the game of love here. That's beyond time's reach. Right. It's beyond the material dominators mastery of, of the time, the, the tick tock of the clock that we often march to. If you can tune into the infinite game of love and sit there like I did last weekend, like you've been doing, look up at the stars in fucking Aspen, Colorado and just fucking marvel at, at eternity and yeah. live that game that goodness with the people that you love and you care about and you're having orgasms and you're, you know, <laughs> blowing your mind and having ecstatic experiences. Well, that's a form of eternity, yeah. right? I've often thought like eternity can be vertical or horizontal. We often, we tend to think of it as horizontal. Eternity means forever. But I had this, this thought because I remembered one of my first girlfriends saying to me that she would love me forever. This was 30 years ago. I haven't been in touch with her in 20 years. Call she, her up. See if she still loves you. I don't think she does. I don't think she remembers. <laughs> Let's get her on the phone right now. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Call her number seven. Oh, Alicia, how are you? Um, but, you know, I was thinking like how funny that is. She said that. I believed her. And now it's so, you know, she doesn't even know who I am. I, I don't even know if she's alive, whatever. Um, but she meant it. I know she meant it. And I, I said it to her and I meant it. And the thing is in that moment, we experienced eternity because our, we were so full of each other that linear horizontal time stopped. You know what I mean? And you can have that kind of experience with psychedelics, with, you know, also, yeah, like uh, where you're ta- where ranting and being in that trance, yeah, like yeah. you're in that flow state, time and space time, cease to exist. Exactly. And you're there. That is eternity. Yeah. Because time isn't there. Right. Right. And so, yeah, I do think that we can, I mean, I, I experienced that so much traveling, you know, like 
I traveled from full moon to full moon, like, okay, the next full moon, I want to be at the Taj Mahal. And then at the next one, I, you know, I, okay, next full moon, I'm going to be in Pushkar or whatever. And like a month traveling in India, fuck, it felt like a year. Yeah, same. Yeah. You know? So what do we mean by time? If we can stretch it out that much or we can even stop it for a while, whatever that means, then yeah, you're right. There are ways, you know, like in that story Ram Das was telling, there are ways to escape the the slavery of time. Drop the shackles. Cool. Drop the shackles, drop the mic. Chris yeah. Ryan. Chris Ryan. <laughs> nice. Thank well you done. so much. Yeah, this yeah. has been great. Yeah. Go listen to Tangentially Speaking. Get Civilized to Death. Pre-order it. It's gonna, uh, I can't wait. Thank you. Yeah, what that's else? helpful. The pre-orders are helpful. Yeah. Um, yeah, appreciate it. Yeah. Glad we got together, Mike. Yeah, awesome. Hey, I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Hope you guys like these podcasts and enjoy them. And if you do, please spread the podcast, share it, tell a neighbor, tell a coworker, tell a friend, tell a cat, tell a mouse, tell a dog, tell an ant, tell a firefly, tell whoever you tell, share it, spread it, like it all that good stuff. If you if you really love the show, you want to go a step further, you really want to help us out, leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts um, and go to patreon.com, patreon slash Mike Brank, and um, patreon.com slash Mike Brank, and you can donate as little as a dollar a month, two dollars a month, whatever you want. Help support the show that way as well. But remember, I love you guys no matter what you do. I just love that you tune in and you enjoy these podcasts. Message me. I like hearing feedback. Get in touch with me on Instagram, Mikeadelic Podcast, Mike Brank on Facebook as well. And um, thanks to our sponsors, Synchro and Hemp Bombs. If you want a discount on ketogenic and plant-based nutrition products, go to Synchro and type in the code uh, Mikeadelic at checkout to get 20% off. And they have amazing ketogenic chocolate fudge called Keto Mana that I have all the time because it's it has like no sugar and carbs in it. So it's great. And um, and it's delicious. And if you want CBD, uh, go to hempbombs.com and get 15% off all your CBD needs, I guess. And uh, just enter the code Mike15 at checkout. But thank you once again to everybody. Thanks to Danny Barnett and Galaxia for the music, the intro and the outro. I love you all. Peace. Peace.